Our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text, is from Matthew 5, verse 9. This is the gospel of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, which is truth and which sanctifies us, your people. Do your work in us through your spirit and through the words that he inspired. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Here's what one history book said in the late 1960s. War is one of the constants of history, and it has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war, end quote. That's a chilling statement. And I doubt that the statistics of unrecorded history would be any better. In fact, some of you might be as surprised as I am to hear that during the last three and a half millennia, we've had 268 years without war. It's hard to imagine that we'll ever have another one of those years uh, without war in our lifetimes. War is a constant reality of modern life. Today, and on any given day, multiple wars are being fought throughout the world. Many people have proposed solutions to the perennial problem of war. One person has suggested, cynically and sarcastically, that the only way we'll have peace on earth is to make contact with ambitious aliens. Soon thereafter, we'll go to war with them. So there will be interplanetary war. Then and only then will we have unity on this planet. Others are less pessimistic and cynical and offer more serious solutions. Some argue for the necessity of a world superpower to maintain world peace. The idea is that one of... One of Earth's superpowers gains dominance over all the others, through war, no doubt. And once this superpower gains control of the world, then it outlaws war. And so, peace ensues forever. The Roman Empire tried something like this a couple thousand years ago, and it didn't work. Others think that what we need to do is just try to convince the citizens of the world that war is unprofitable. It's not worth it. If we can just persuade the masses that it, that it's, that it isn't worth it to go to war, then more and more people will refuse to participate in it. And eventually, wars will cease, and there will be peace on earth. 
It's like the old bumper sticker that said, what if they had a war and nobody came? Another suggestion is that everyone from nations to individuals just need to live by the golden rule. If everyone did that, there would be no wars. Now, this idea touches on the real solution. It's it's at least getting closer and approaching the biblical answer to war. But it doesn't go far enough on its own. We have to remember that the golden rule also exists in in religions other than Christianity. Buddhists believe in the golden rule, and they seek to apply it not least in the area of war and peace. We can't solve our war problem simply by appealing to ethics, by applying an ethical principle like the golden rule. The problem of war, of conflict, runs deeper than that. War is a profoundly theological problem that goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Which means that the solution must also be profoundly theological. What's needed if there's to be peace on earth is a radical change in humans, inside of humans. A radical change at the heart level of human beings. No one can live the golden rule by sheer willpower. No one can master any of these beatitudes that we've been talking about in his own strength. Peace is humanly impossible. It's not possible for nations or families or marriages to be at peace. It's not possible for any individual person to be at peace in his own soul apart from a radical renovation of the heart. That's why the seventh beatitude is as relevant today as it was when Jesus first spoke it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This divine pronouncement from Jesus, when you understand it and when you take it to heart, this pronouncement won't just bring you inner peace. It'll also make you an instrument of peace. It'll transform you into a peacemaker. Not just a peace-haver, but a peacemaker. This blessed promise in Matthew 5, 9 has the potential to give you peace within and to make you mediators of peace in the lives around you. Now, to understand what Christ is saying, we need to look... uh, for a few minutes, just at the word peacemakers. The first half of the word is peace. Peace has the same meaning as the Hebrew word shalom. You've heard that word used. And shalom bears the idea of wholeness, completeness, overall well-being. It's comprehensive in scope. Shalom is, peace is. In the Bible, when a Jew said shalom to someone, 
he was wishing the other person more than just the absence of trouble. The absence of conflict. He was also wishing the other person all the blessings that make for a complete, whole life. We shouldn't define the peace of God narrowly as the absence of problems. It's much more than just the absence of strife. It's, it's got a positive connotation. Peace is a positive reality. It encompasses all of the person. So we need to keep that in mind every time we use the word peace. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament when we see it. The second half of the word is makers. And just think about the word maker for a minute. We, we say peacemaker and we don't think about what the words that make up peacemaker means. But just think about maker. A maker is someone who makes something happen. Who does something that changes reality. A maker is not passive. He's not sitting back waiting for it to come to him. No, he's making it happen. A peacemaker is a maker of peace. A peacemaker is a source of peace. Peacemaker is a, is a dynamic word that, that is bursting with energy. It describes someone who actively pursues peace in all its fullness. Shalom. Peacemaker pursues more than the absence of conflict then. He pursues wholeness and well-being for himself and for those around him. So bearing this in mind, let's think for a few minutes, let's think through what a peacemaker is not. Peacemaker is not necessarily the person who is easygoing and laissez-faire. A peacemaker is not the guy who goes along to get along, who doesn't care what anyone else does as long as it doesn't disrupt or endanger his way of life. That's a passive approach to peace. A peacemaker is someone who takes an active role in establishing, accomplishing peace. Neither is a peacemaker always tolerant of what's going on around him. You do your thing and I'll do mine and we'll just live in harmony with one another. Nor is a peacemaker an appeaser, the kind who wants peace at any price, at all cost, peace. Appeasement does not make for peace. It just puts off conflict. Actually, a true peacemaker is not afraid to rock the boat when necessary. There's a difference between waging war and making waves. A peacemaker, as we'll see, knows when to rock the boat and make waves as a means to bringing peace, true peace, biblical peace, shalom. So what then are peacemakers? We've, we've talked about what it's not, what they're not, but what are they positively? What does Scripture have to say about peace and what it means to make it? Let's consider three characteristics of a peacemaker. Number one, a peacemaker is honest. A peacemaker is characterized by honesty. If there's a problem, he acknowledges it. He wants to know and acknowledge truth, the truth. 
about reality. In the book of Ezekiel, God warns against prophets who act as if all is well when it's not. God says in Ezekiel 13, verse 10, that these prophets, quote, have misled my people. How? Saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. These are false prophets, false peacemakers. They put cheap plaster over the broken walls, and when the rain comes, the true state of the walls is revealed, and they crumble. That's the, that's the metaphor that Ezekiel uses in that same chapter. The prophet Jeremiah uses similar language in Jeremiah 6, verse 14. One translates, translation puts it this way, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. The peacemaker doesn't do this. That's, that's not what he's about. No, the peacemaker is painfully honest about the true state of things. He's honest about the state of his relationships, about the state of his family, about the state of his own heart, about the state of his marriage. He admits failed relationships. He acknowledges the tension if others have something against him. He admits it when he's at odds with others. He doesn't pretend. He doesn't let others drag him into fruitless wars, to be sure. He doesn't get dragged into arguments that lead nowhere. But neither does he pretend that there's peace when there's none. He doesn't put putty on the cracks of the walls when a renovation is needed. He refuses to say peace, peace when there is no peace. So number one, a peacemaker is characterized by honesty. He's honest about reality. Number two, a peacemaker is willing to risk pain. This might be the most important one. Anytime we attempt to make peace where there is no peace or where there, where there needs to be more peace, we necessarily risk being misunderstood and we, miss, we risk failure. We risk being wrong even and having to apologize. We risk the possibility of having to rebuke someone. We risk tension in relationships, in friendships. We risk people leaving our church. To be a peacemaker, you must be a risk taker. You see, the temptation is to let things slide, to live and let live, to go along and get along, to wait for an easier way, an easier path, an easier solution. It's easy to tell yourself that you're trying to bring peace by going the slow road, but maybe you need to take a risk. It's easy to tell yourself that if you take this road, things will only get worse, and you may be right about how it seems, but that still might be the best road to take. The life and ministry of the Apostle Paul is one huge illustration of taking risks for the purpose of making peace. Think about that. Paul went on his missionary trips and he preached the gospel again and again in 
synagogues and, and town centers. He preached to Jews and to Gentiles. Why? Because he wanted people to be at peace with God in Christ. That's why. But it was risky. Being a peacemaker is always risky. Paul lost relationships. He lost flesh. He lost consciousness at times. He lost a whole lot of comfort. He lost sleep. He lost safety. He lost out on the bare necessities at various times. All so he could offer the peace of God in Christ to those who did not have the peace of God. He risked everything to be a peacemaker. So these first two principles, these first two qualities, we should say, of the peacemaker, honesty and the willingness to take risks, to risk pain, these two qualities anticipate the third quality. Number three, a peacemaker is a fighter. Somebody who's willing to fight. He fights for peace. He wages peace. He makes every effort to establish peace. He's eager for peace. In Ephesians 4, 3, Paul says that Christians must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Romans 14, 19, he says that we are to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, follow hard after what makes for peace and for mutual edification, building up. One of my favorite verses on peace is Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, fighting for peace is not what it sounds like, maybe. You don't fight for peace with the same tactics that the world uses to fight. The peacemaker is not thoughtless or pugnacious or argumentative or combative in his fight for peace. He doesn't use the world's weapons of warfare. Rather, his personality is filled with the shalom of God, the peace of God, which means that the peacemaker, the one fighting for peace, the one waging peace is poor in spirit he's aware of his own sins he's gentle and meek he's hungry and thirsty for righteousness he's merciful and he's pure in heart you see how i just went through the first six beatitudes when someone has mastered these first six beatitudes he's ready to master the seventh but not until then. Not until then. The book of James has some instructive things to say about how we are to wage peace. James 3, verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, 
full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that, make peace. Those who are peacemakers, in other words. And that's worth reading again. And as I read it again this, the second time, notice that many of the Beatitudes are represented in these two verses that I just read. It's almost as if James had the Beatitudes in mind when he wrote this. Listen again, James 3, 17 and 18. I'm reading from the ESV. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Now, remember in the Beatitudes, pure in heart comes right before peacemakers. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, or meek, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The peacemaker fights for peace by practicing all of the Beatitudes in all of his relationships. That's how you fight this battle. It's not a normal battle, is it? It's not a worldly battle. Let me say that again. The peacemaker fights for peace by practicing all of the Beatitudes in all of his relationships. He's tolerant in the best sense of the word, not in the worldly sense of the word. He realizes that everyone, including himself, is of fallen, sinful stock. And so he doesn't demand perfection from others. He's humble and gentle. His ego is under control. He's loving and merciful. He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. A righteousness that leads to a harvest of righteousness, which is sown in peace by those who make peace. Are you known for making peace? What are you sowing? What kinds of seed are you sowing? Are you producing a harvest of righteousness by way of peacemaking? The peacemaker can fight for peace effectively because his own heart has already been conquered by the peace of God. Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule, reign in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. When the peace of Christ is enthroned in your heart, then you're ready to be a peacemaker. And only then. So are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker? How do you use your tongue? Do you fight for peace in your relationships, in your spheres of influence, in your community, in your church, in your marriage? Do you fight for peace in the flesh or in the spirit? Do you retreat when you should advance and advance when you should retreat? Do you fight in your own strength or in the strength of the Lord? Are your weapons carnal or spiritual? Is your heart ruled by Christ's peace or by your own ideas and visions? Are your tactics worldly or spiritual? Are you imitating Christ or the world in your fight for peace? So what kind of battle 
are you fighting? Think about your relationships at church, in your home, in your community, online, wherever. As far as it depends on you, are you living at peace with everyone? Are you sowing a harvest of righteousness in peace? Is that your legacy? Is that the legacy you're leaving behind? Or are you forgetting that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? You see, if if you remember that, you'll fight a certain way. If you forget it, you'll just look like the world. Maybe you're neither a peacemaker nor a troublemaker, and, and you think that's just fine. That's a good place to be. Uh, you know, I'm not causing anyone, anyone any trouble. You go with the flow, and you're content not to make any ways or take any risks to establish peace where peace is lacking. In that case, you need to be called to peacemaking. You need to hear that God has called you to be a peacemaker. It's an active vocation. It's not an option. It's your duty. You should be doing it in some way. It's your Christian duty to have that uncomfortable conversation. It's your Christian duty maybe to look over an offense. It's your Christian duty to address the peace-killing elephant in the room of your marriage or your household. It's risky. But your goal in life is not to dodge risks or to turn away from conflict. Your goal is to cause the peace of Christ to rule inside of you and all around you. That's your vocation. Your purpose is to establish God's shalom. In God's strength, in God's ways, by God's grace, establish God's shalom in your soul and in the world. Your mission is to make gospel peace. Not worldly peace, not your idea of peace, but gospel peace. Everywhere you can, starting in your own heart and working out from there. That's your mission. Jesus, of course, is the supreme peacemaker. The supreme maker of supreme peace. He made peace through his blood, Paul says. He's the glorious prince of peace in Isaiah 9, 6. At his birth, the angels celebrated the fulfillment of Isaiah 9 when they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And what we must see is that there was nothing cheap about His peacemaking. Nothing cheap about the peace that he made and that he makes. The peace that Christ made on the cross was costly indeed. Listen to what Paul says about the peacemaking blood of the cross in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Jesus is the consummate peacemaker. He saw the gravity of our sin problem and he was not willing to just sweep it under the rug. He refused to do it. A drastic problem requires a drastic solution. And so he made peace between us and God, between you and God through his blood by dying and shedding his blood on the cross. All the implications of what it means to be a peacemaker flow from the cross of Christ. All the implications are right there in the life ministry, particularly the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it means to be a peacemaker. It's rooted in that event, the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus didn't make peace by writing essays or making new laws or winning debates or by leading a political revolution, as important as all those things are in their place. He made peace by dying on a cross. And so Christ is our supreme example of sacrificial aggression. Sacrificial aggression. In bringing peace. The key ingredient in being a peacemaker is Christ's sacrificial aggression. Sacrificial fighting. Jesus became a source of peace, the source of peace, through his sacrificial aggression. Listen to Ephesians 2, 13 to 17. And notice how Paul talks about what the cross did for our peace with God and our peace with one another. Humanity's peace horizontally as well as vertically with God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off Gentiles have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And that dividing wall of hostility goes two ways. There's a wall between humanity and humanity and humanity and God. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Let me read that again. And might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. By becoming our peace, Jesus made it possible for us to have peace with God and to have peace among ourselves. Because of the cross, peace with God and peace among men are both achievable. In other words, what Jesus accomplished through his blood makes it possible for you and me to be peacemakers. Peace with God and peace among men is now possible. It was impossible without the blood. But it's eminently possible when we do it in the power of the blood. There's power in the blood to make peace. There's no power without the blood. And Jesus gave us an example of how peacemaking 
works, how peacemakers are to go about their work, their mission, their vocation. Listen to Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Christ made peace. And and that's our model for how to make peace, for how to be a peacemaker. In winning our peace with God, our Lord didn't seek his own glory. Instead, he humbled himself. He did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, he counted others more significant than himself. The God-man did that. Paul exhorts us to do it, but then he shows us that the God-man himself did it. He's the supreme example of a peacemaker. And when we look at how he made peace, we see that making peace is risky and making peace is expensive. It costs to make peace. A peacemaker must lower himself and he must lose himself to bring shalom into his life, into his home, into his church, into his community. This is how peacemaking works works it's how peacemakers make peace and we can't overemphasize the radical nature of the call to be peacemakers peacemaking as commended by jesus in the seventh beatitude is not a natural human ability or quality it's beyond fallen human nature it's impossible The radicalness of Christ's call to peacemaking demands a renovation of sinful human nature. To be a peacemaker, one must first have a profound experience of the peace of God. To be a peacemaker, as Billy Graham said, you must know the peace giver. No one can become a peacemaker until he has found peace, experienced peace himself. You can't make peace around you until the peace of Christ has been made in you, until the peace of Christ is ruling in you. Without God's grace, we're natural enemies of God and natural enemies of one another. Your heart must be changed before you can make peace with your spouse or with your child or with your parents or with your boss. You can't give what you don't have. Making peace must flow out of a changed heart that is being filled up and renewed regularly 
by the Holy Spirit. The rivers of living water that Jesus talks about in John 7 must be flowing out of your heart before you can make peace. And if that river is running out of your heart, it's because the peace of God is ruling there in your heart. The peace of God, the peace of Christ, is the source. This interchange coupled with the ongoing dependence on the Holy Spirit is what makes a peacemaker. The Holy Spirit molds the character of a peacemaker. And He molds the peacemaker so that he becomes increasingly humble and gentle and loving. In other words, he becomes increasingly like Jesus Christ. The Spirit elevates the integrity of the peacemaker so that he can honestly evaluate the development of peace in his life and in his relationships, in his communities. The Spirit strengthens the peacemaker so that he can avoid saying peace, peace, where there is no peace. The Spirit leads the peacemaker to risk pain and misunderstanding in the pursuit of gospel peace. The peace of Christ. The, the Spirit also develops in the peacemaker a spirit of sacrificial aggression that knows how to wage peace wisely. If we're troublemakers rather than peacemakers, it's not clear from this text that we're children of God. Jesus says that peacemakers, and the idea is peacemakers alone shall be called sons of God. Jesus emphasizes they. They alone shall be called sons of God. So if you're not a peacemaker, there's no guarantee that you shall be called a son of God. And so I ask, are you a peacemaker or a troublemaker in your various relationships and circles of influence. It's true that peacemakers sometimes are called to be troublemakers for the sake of peace. That's true. But peacemakers never use the ways and weapons of the world. They never look like the world in their tactics. You can always tell a peacemaker by the peace of Christ that is ruling in his heart and flowing out from there. So if you're wondering whether you're a troublemaker or a peacemaker, then check to see if the peace of Christ is sitting on the throne in your heart. This diagnostic test can be used in all kinds of circumstances. If there's no peace of Christ there's no peace making and there's very likely trouble making now you may be convinced in your mind that you're being a troublemaker for the sake of Christ a troublemaker for the sake of peace after all there are times for that right I've, I've acknowledged that we should acknowledge that but but if if no one around you seems to think that the peace of Christ is ruling your heart, then it's possible that you're not being honest with yourself. And you're not a biblical reformer after all. If you're always discontent or 
continually find yourself stirring up discontent or dissension, if you find joy in reports of trouble or scandal, if you are critical of all the authorities in your life, if you're constantly finding faults with others, if these negative qualities characterize your life rather than the qualities, the characteristics that we see in the Beatitudes, then the peace of Christ is probably not on the throne in your heart. So in closing, let's talk, let's talk about how to be a peacemaker. How does one become and be a peacemaker? I'll leave you just with two fairly short applications on how to become a peacemaker. And really, this is mostly review. First, as we've already said, a peacemaker must experience the peace of God, the peace of Christ, biblical shalom himself. That's very first. You've got to start there. Nowhere to go if you, if you don't have that. It's a non-starter if you can't answer that question in the affirmative. Do I have the peace of Christ ruling in my heart? You must have peace inside of you before you can make peace outside of you. You must have peace inside of you before you can make peace outside of you. If you are a walking civil war, this raging battle inside of you, and you can't really find any peace at all, then your attempts to make peace will be futile. Your attempts to make peace with others will just become an occasion for war. You can only impart what you possess. If you're a believer who is not walking in the fullness of God's shalom in Christ, you must repent and ask Jesus for spiritual renewal. You've got to fight for that peace, that inner peace, that, that peace that's that has to be ruling in your heart before you go any further. So fight that battle first. Start there before you start fighting battles outside of you. Second, peacemakers are developed as they ascend the ladder of the Beatitudes, the previous six Beatitudes. The first six Beatitudes build up to the seventh. If you're doing the first six, you'll probably find yourself doing the seventh. Therefore, peacemakers are poor in spirit. They recognize that there's nothing within them that commends them to God. They acknowledge this. This is an ongoing realization for them. Peacemakers mourn over their sin. They've come, to fa- they've, they've come face to face with their own sin, and it grieves them. No one's sin grieves them more than their own sin. Peacemakers are meek. Their poverty of spirit and their mourning over their own sins leads them to gentleness and meekness in dealing with others. Peacemakers are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They hate sin, and they love to do what's right, which is why they pursue biblical peace in their own hearts and in their relationships. Peacemakers are merciful. The reality of their own need has made them merciful toward others, making a way for peace with others. 
Peacemakers are pure in heart. They've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ, and their pure lives are focused on Him and what He wants. And they're blessed with an ongoing vision of God. And they're able to see God and what He wants better and better all the time so they know what it means to pursue peace better and better all the time. Peacemakers are those who have been infused by the peace of God and the character of His kingdom. Peacemakers are those who have been infused by the peace of Christ and the character of His kingdom. Is that you? The peacemaking of peacemaker rides the current of those rivers of living water that flow out of the heart. Peacemakers are those in whom all the Beatitudes are manifested again and again and again, day in and day out, in all of his relationships, in all that he does, all that he sets his hand to do, in all of his spheres of influence. The Beatitudes are manifested again and again, sometimes in order, sometimes out of order, sometimes one at a time, sometimes all of them together. Peacemakers are called sons of God because they have the character of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for making peace with us through the blood of the cross. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be peacemakers in the name of Jesus. Amen.